Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, February 15th, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim wraps up the history of Disney's Vero Beach Resort. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that Peekaboo is a game where you make fun of babies for not understanding object permanence. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Do folks understand what object permanence meant? I mean, it's the equivalent of even if you can't see something, it still exists like the sun on a cloudy day or, or in my case, my feet. <laughs> I'm sure they're there. <laughs> That's not true. I've actually lost seven pounds since the start of the year. So it's a good thing. But I'm more intrigued by uh, when it comes to babies that have you ever heard the theory about why that the, the top of a baby's head smells you know, I mean, it just it's intoxicating to some people, like the, the newborn. No, I haven't heard this. Okay, well, it's, it's, it turns out this is something, again, the wonders of evolution. Because if you think about it, yeah, a newborn, it's crying, it's screaming, it's pooping, it's peeing. It's not got a lot of positives. But it turns out that the top of the head gives off sort of a, a, a pheromone kind of thing where it's like, oh, oh, okay, this is lovely. Let, let's keep this screaming beast with us, you know. And, and <laughs> Eventually. We can tame this thing. There we go. But yeah. It's, so they're cute and they smell good. And that's the uh, that's the redeeming quality that makes us, uh, or that made our ancestors keep babies around. But and again, let's remember with the screaming and the pooping, not necessarily cute, but again, smells great. If you're holding up the right end, I just want to stress. So, you know, like. Evolution is a wondrous thing, Jim. There it is. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Sarah E., DBC Family, Charles R., and Phil G., and longtime subscribers Chris H., Emlet, and Jackstad. Jim, these are the first order maintenance team tasked with repairing the Imperial Star Cruiser every night after it gets attacked by the rebellion in Disney's Rise of the Resistance. They say it's a difficult job, but Kylo Ren is really good about emphasizing work-life balance, and the cafeteria has free Taco Tuesdays. So that's nice. <laughs> True story. I always learned so much about the behind the scenes at the resort during this segment. It's, it, it's an amazing, wondrous world there, isn't it? It is. It is. <laughs> All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. Free worry-free travel experience every time. Book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, not a whole lot of news news, but we have a ton of listener questions. Uh, the big news, uh, the Leave a Legacy Monuments have returned to Epcot, and I believe they're in Technicolor now. Have you seen this, Jim? Yes, yes. I applaud taking the giant gray slabs and and attempting to give them some color. I just have one concern as a guy who's five foot six. This mm -hmm. thing is eight feet tall. Is that correct? Eight feet tall, yeah. And uh, there's an app now that will let you locate your Leave a Legacy tile as well. But yeah, eight feet tall and no stepladders to, uh, to see things. On the other hand, you know, I feel bad for the cast member who's basically, well, here, climb up on my back. We'll show you where you are. <laughs> I'm going, I'm going to get down on all fours yeah, and just know. sort of step on me and we'll, 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 we'll do. So I have a couple of questions here. One, what do you think of the color version of the Leave a Legacy tiles? There's an overlay of like the rainbow theme that Epcot's using now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had a friend who worked at Imagineering who worked with John Hench on this project and remember the the initial idea here was this was going to be sort of a postmodern stonehenge 
sort of framing Spaceship Earth, and that really didn't work out. So the fact that it, it is at least attempting to be colorful and happy and upbeat, because the joke used to be that as you arrived in the park and looked at these pictures, you know, it's like, well, who are these people? It's like, oh, they're the ones who died while walking around World Showcase. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a memorial. They made the mistake of, <laughs> of stopping at the Via Napoli and you know, one too many bowls of pasta and then boom, fell over. I wonder if we all would have perceived the Leva Legacy monuments different if they had been in color like they are now. That was the big question I got out of this. Because I got to say, the color scheme isn't bad. Mm-hmm. My other observation is this. Apparently, mm-hmm. when Disney sold the Leva Legacy tiles... It promised to display them in perpetuity. And I believe this is the last time that Disney's lawyers Mm -hmm. will ever let something like that go. Wow. Uh, But now... They must not have included that language with the walk around the world. Walk around the book, right, exactly, with the walk around the, uh, the book tiles, mm-hmm. that, that uh, walk around the world tiles. They definitely had the rights there to mm-hmm. take the tiles out or to replace them. But for this, mm-hmm. I guess the language was a little bit more vague, and uh-huh. Disney decided, you know what, we have to keep these things around. Otherwise, there's, there's no point in keeping them around, right? But contractually obligated to do it, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> we jump ahead, multiple millennium, and Earth's a burned-out cinder, and the aliens arrived, and it's like, this is what they'll find? Yeah, it's the pyramids and that. Yeah, Yeah. and they'll they'll be there'll be people who trying to figure out what it all meant, you know, years and years and years. They must have been very tiny. Look at the pictures. They worship in sync like gods. (laughs) 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 All right, let's do some listener questions. Okay, Jim, this is one from Taylor, Hmm. uh, who writes in. uh, Len, you and Jim are always so helpful answering listener questions. I figured I'd send these in to my favorite Disney oracles. The first question is this. With the change of magic hours to daily magic half hour, I was curious what time you would suggest arriving at the parks in the mornings to make the most of the shortened hours for staying on site. And are there any other new procedures we should be aware of? All right, so to, so to start the, with that first question, yeah, so for the Magic Kingdom, Animal Kingdom, and the studios, I think you should arrive around an hour before official opening mm-hmm. or, you know, 30 minutes before early theme park entry mm-hmm. when that starts. Um, and then maybe 10 or 15 minutes earlier during holidays, spring break and other days of peak attendance. So like the Magic Kingdom, Animal Kingdom and Studios are all opening 45 or 50 minutes in advance. So 60 minutes gives you time to park the car, mm-hmm. get through security and make it to the uh, to the entrance. Okay. For Epcot, get there around 30 minutes before official opening right now. But once... Remy opens or when early theme park entry starts, uh, you should arrive 60 minutes in advance. So um, if you want to visit Remy, Taylor, and you you should do that first, plan on arriving at the International Gateway entrance because that'll give you a 10-minute head start on everyone Mm -hmm. coming from the main entrance. The other big tip I have for arriving is you should Uber to the Contemporary and the Swan or Dolphin and walk uh, to those parks. Excellent suggestions. The, uh, The second question Taylor had is this. Given the pandemic, our family is planning to only dine outdoors. Al fresco, as the kids say. Mm-hmm. What are your favorite places to eat with outdoor seating at the parks or the resorts? Uh, so I spent some time on this one. This was interesting. Mm-hmm. So um, let me give you a few options, Taylor, and, and sort of the rationale for it. So the first one I think is, uh, when I think of outdoor dining is Geyser Point at the Wilderness Lodge. Jim, you've eaten here, right? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, even if you don't manage to get down there to dine, 
especially if you want to catch the electrical water pageant during your family's stay at the resort. This is an excellent place to actually catch that show yeah. from. Really panoramic view, undercover, and again, a bar right there. Yeah, Adirondack Chairs mm-hmm. uh, behind Geyser Point, in case you wanted to watch the electrical water pageant. Great views. Mm-hmm. The weather's pretty good right now. So yeah, that's my that's my first choice. Okay. Also, the food's really good too. Um, so it's interesting in that it's, it's like a fast, casual place, mm-hmm. but with wait staff. Mm-hmm. And it's all covered, too. So you're covered, you're outdoors, you're not in the direct sunlight. And the food is really, really good, too. It's very highly rated. My uh, my second place is uh, Beaches and Cream to Go mm-hmm. at Yacht and Beach Club if you can eat it out by the pool. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, the, the burgers and fries there are good. The shakes are good. You don't want to be inside because it's super small. Mm-hmm. I understand that. Um, but you can eat around the pool. So that's my second. In the parks, I think Pecos Bill's in the Magic Kingdom has outdoor seating all the way around to Tortuga Tavern mm-hmm. and Pico Spills is better than Cosmic Rays. Cosmic Rays also has some outdoor seating. Yeah. It's lower rated. Mm-hmm. In Epcot Spice Road Table, which was recently taken over by Disney, but has maintained pretty much the same menu, okay. is outdoors and is remarkably highly rated. Mm-hmm. I like the Brown Derby Bar area outside of the studios. And there's also, I think, some outdoor dining at Backlot Express if you wanted sort of counter service food. Um, and then of course in animal kingdom, there's nothing better than flame tree barbecue. Okay. Those work. Yeah. Mm. I think, I think those are all good choices. No, I agree. All right. Yeah. So, uh, so Taylor, let us know what you uh, try when you get there. Also, Jim, uh, Jacob sent this in mm-hmm. on your most recent episode in response to a correction from a British listener about Bodie McBoatface. You made a reference to the queen's corgis. I'm also in the UK and FYI, the queen hasn't had corgis. Since 2018, she currently has a dorgy, which is a Dachshund Corgi mix. I'm telling you this for two reasons. First, I hope to set a record for the most inconsequential correction you've ever received. Second, I'm hoping you uh, to entangle you in an endless cycle of UK-themed corrections. Go ahead, use the word pants. I dare you. <laughs> Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. All right, we all know that pants means underwear in the UK. Mm-hmm. The UK uses trousers well, as the UK equivalent of pants. But... In the spirit of engaging Jacob Mm -hmm. and our UK listeners for years to come, Mm -hmm. let me offer this. This is my hot take, uh, if you will. Uh, And it's this. Lunch, tea, and supper are all the same meals. (laughs) Discuss. (laughs) Okay. I actually mentioned mentioned this to someone from the UK today. I was doing another podcast. Mm -hmm. And we talked for 15 minutes about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, There's no clear definition in the United Kingdom about what those meals are. And it's different in different regions. So that's great. Anyway, enjoy that, Jacob. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, Tim sent this in via Twitter. For the Golden Girls, remember, Jim, we had talked about the pilot episode of the Golden Girls Mm -hmm. where there was a uh, a male co-star? Yes. Um, I've actually found out what his name was. He was Coco. Coco, right. So uh, Tim sent in an article from The Atlantic, Mm -hmm. which... You know, it's it's nice that the Atlantic has has time to take out from uh, policy analysis and politics <laughs> to talk about the history of a NBC sitcom. Mm-hmm. So it, the Atlantic did this article that said, you know, thirty years ago, the fifth Golden Girl was a man named Coco, and he was apparently a hedge in the pilot, and then was uh, replaced by Estelle Getty. Which, I mean, if you're going to get replaced by anyone, Jim, being replaced by Estelle Getty, 
is not an insult. Supposedly, this was a note from NBC. They were concerned about a show that, well, first of all, it's a, all older actresses. It's a, got a very strong feminine voice. And it's just sort of like, can we get a male in there? Can we get just at least one guy in there? And then it's like, so they shoot the pilot. They test the pilot. Everybody loves the pilot. And it's like, eh, we don't need the guy. And it just, and that's the thing. He just <laughs> disappears from the pilot to episode two. And they never explain it. Just sort of like, all right, well, you know, it's buried out in the backyard somewhere. Where evidently the cheese puffs, you know, weren't you know, as good as they expected, so they killed him and, and just moved on. We all knew Betty White has dark secrets. Oh, yes. Apparently, this is one of them. There we go. All right. Uh, Gary sent in a Disney survey about a new monthly subscription service. Mm-hmm. So here's the question from Disney If we were to offer a subscription service, which plan would you most likely purchase? So, subscription option A includes this digital Disney Parks magazine every season. Original articles, original podcasts, original travel tools, behind-the-scenes content, plus extra perks and discounts for $4 a month. Subscription B, subscription plan B, is original articles, original podcasts, original travel tools, behind-the-scenes content, extra perks and discounts. So no Disney Digital Parks magazine once a quarter. And that's $3 a month. Mm -hmm. So one less thing, $3 a month. The third option, subscription plan C, is the magazine every season, the articles, the podcast, the travel tools, the behind-the-scenes content, the extra perks and discounts, plus a mini Disney Parks print, one per sign-up, for $6 a month. So that print costs you an additional 2 or $3 per month, and you get one of them. That is super interesting. Yeah. So, okay, 2 or $3 a month extrapolate that over out over you so you're paying 36 dollars for this print mini print which 36 dollars a year yeah for a print you get once yeah i would have to see what the print was len is it like walt riding a tiger jumping over caesar's palace fountains i mean like what i'm sorry what? we are talking that level <laughs> you know? the the other thing that confuses me is the well, there's a couple of things that confuse me one is the titles of each plan are different so the first one is subscription A. Mm-hmm. The second one says subscription plan B. And then in the third one, they drop the word plan and it's subscription C. So it's like what you think from a consistency perspective that they would they would make the titles the same to not induce people to prefer one or the other just based on the grammar mm. that's used or the syntax that's used. The other thing is, and I got to ask this question and I will be immodest in asking it, is there someone at Disney who literally does nothing but follow me around and figure and, and figure out like how could we do this and how much could we charge for what it looks like? Like did it would it be easier? I know the people from Disney listen to the show. Would it be easier if I just gave you guys access to my Google calendar? Where you could just I mean, would that speed things up? Is that if that's helpful, let me know. Cause because I'm a helper. Let me know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it's fascinating to have this being proposed at a time. And, and face it, from the artwork at the bottom of this thing, this is a Disney World-centric offer. It's a Disney World-centric thing, yeah. So the artwork at the bottom has uh, Epcot, the Earful Tower, which no longer exists, mm-hmm. the castle, and then the Tree of Life. 
That's the other thing, Len. It's sort of like, which intern is prepping this? It's just sort of like, the Eiffel Tower, really? <laughs> Do we have some clip art we can use here? There it's not going to matter, yeah. But you have this going on at, at the same time that we're out in California. It's like, legacy pass holders. You know, it's like, here, you know, it's like... Oof. Uh, anyway, interesting uh, interesting idea. Yeah, absolutely. My concern with doing monthly subscriptions, especially for things like travel tools, mm-hmm. is that people would sign up once mm-hmm. for one month and then cancel. And that's actually the feedback that we got from people when I was sort of circulating this mm-hmm. survey around, mm-hmm. um, is that people yeah, people would sign up once, use it, and then cancel. Super interesting idea, then. You know how we're on January 1st, you get this punch list of articles or, or pieces about this is what you should do is, you know, the new year starts. And one of the mm-hmm. things was literally go through all of your subscriptions, 90% of which you've forgotten about. This is $3, this is $2, this is that, yep, you know. it adds up, yeah. Yeah, and it's just the whole notion of actually delete the ones that you don't use anymore. And I, I think Disney is hoping that whatever they do here would fall into that category. The, yeah, I signed up and it's, it's three years later. Do I still get that? It's like, yes, absolutely. And we enjoy your money. Yeah. So the uh, the the scrip- subscription service of the course of a year would be uh, $36.48 or $72, which compared to what other websites charge is a lot more. Did I mention so the, the uh, print the, the, though, Len? The amazing print of the, print, exactly. the, it's the, the, the Walt on yeah, the tiger jumping over the, the fountain. Yeah, so. I get that. All right. It was an interesting uh, survey day. I wonder what the... I wonder if there's if there'll be a follow up, but anyway, uh, yeah. Thanks for, for thanks for sending that in, Gary. The other thing Jim I want to talk about is this patent that Disney filed earlier in February, and it's titled "Networked Smart Fixtures Supporting Visual Merchandise Designers with Remote Monitoring, Control, and Reprogramming." And the thing that I found interesting about it is the image that came along with the patent application, and it's. Imagine the queue of Haunted Mansion where you can play with the different things in line. So as you're going through the queue to the left, Jim, mm-hmm. you can play on the, um, you know, how like some of the mausoleum pieces, you can touch them and they make different sounds mm-hmm. and they, they produce different effects. It's like that, but for a shopping display. And I think this is Haunted Mansion. Related, Jim, for a couple of reasons. One, there's an there's an axe <laughs> on one of the shelves, and I, I I can't think of many Disney rides mm-hmm. in which there would be an axe. The second thing is there appear to be scary masks yep. involved as well. Yeah, yeah. Memento Mary. Uh, what is the the shop? Memento Mori. There we right. go. Yeah. Okay. The Haunted Mansion. They have been trying to do interactive merch, that sort of thing, for several years yeah. now. Do you remember the spirit jars? Yeah. There's a belief that there's really something that could be done here, something that could really connect with consumers. Memento Mori was, was actually an upgrade over the previous... It was, it was. It ...store that was there, but this is like the next version of that. It is, yeah. it is. But it's the notion of we are still not doing as well as we could do with our merchandise for the Haunted Mansion. So just kind of interesting that... How many times has the mansion itself been plussed? And now here we are in the, the post-show gift shop, and it's like, okay, we need to plus that too. Well, the gift shop makes uh, revenue. The thing, the other thing that I found interesting about this display is mm-hmm. that it looks like the area behind where you display the merchandise, so like the wall behind the shelves, yes. mm-hmm. is interactive. Mm-hmm. Like there's a rattlesnake in one, and my sense is, and there's a, there's a person in another. It looks like there are 
things that would either look at you or interact with you as you were examining the merchandise. And that's something that we haven't seen, I think, anywhere before, right? So imagine as you pick up a, a piece of clothing or like a mug or something, you know, the eyes on the display behind you that you thought were wallpaper actually look at you as you pick it up. Like that's that could be cool. That's kind of interesting. Whatever yeah. lowers your sales resistance and makes you think, oh, I really do need to buy this $60 polo shirt. And I think a lot of people would come into the shop to just to experience yes. the display, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, uh, Jim's going to give us the finale of the history of Disney's Vero Beach Resort. We'll be right back. When we left off last week, there was talk of doing uh, Disney Villages mm-hmm. for a timeshare, right? And one of them was like Fantasy Island. Yep. And uh, the other one that we have some info about was the Frontier Village. At least in the Orlando market, there were already hundreds, if not thousands of condos just outside of Disney property that were available for purchase. And so the the notion was that if we're going to do something on property, it has to be special. It has to be different than what's out there. Problem is, Peter Rummel, the then head of Disney development, very, very concerned about the startup costs of a project like this. And then before going into the timeshare business, Disney had done a lot of research. And the hard reality was that 40% of the money that you make off of the sale of a, a, a timeshare has to be plowed into marketing. 40%. That's Those are huge they are. acquisition they, costs. But again, yeah. you have to get people to come through the door. So if Disney was sticking with the already established business model, given what you have to spend to build the things, given what you have to spend to advertise and get people to come through the door, it's only a, a 17% profit per year if you sell every unit and get them all booked for a full year. From Rumble's point of view, it's like, no, this is insane for us to do this Disney Village this idea. Uh, startup costs are enormous. Uh, the risks are huge. We need to go in the other direction, which is why in 1989, when Disney finally admits that they're getting into timeshares, but let's not call them timeshares. Let's call it the Disney Vacation Club. They went with a far more conservative and conventional entry. I, it, it, at that point, it was going to be called Conch Flats. And remember how on a previous show we were talking about the giant Dixie Landings Portaline complex? Yeah. Disney actually kept the cost down of the first Disney Vacation Club by building that at the same time. So a lot of the infrastructure, roads, electrical, water, that sort of thing could be done at the same time as Dixie Landings and Portaline's. And also they were so unsure about whether or not there would be a response to the Disney Vacation Club that the original plan was they're building 197 units total along Lake Buena Vista out by the Lake Buena Vista golf course. But only out of those 197 units, Len, only 51 of them were specifically designated to be DVC inventory. The rest of them were supposed to be hotel rooms that you could book like any Disney World Resort. Oh, and that, that's them hedging their bets. That's it, exactly. So worst case scenario, if they launch this thing and nobody goes for it, it's like, okay, it's only a 200-room boutique hotel. We just take those 51 DVC units, we absorb them in, and we just make this part a hotel that anybody on Disney property could stay with. October 1991, 
Mark Pascal, the, the then vice president and general manager of Vacation Club, back then you could buy points in the Disney Vacation Club starting at $11,730, and they went up to a high of 16000 So how much is that per point? You know, I'm not sure. But they were hoping that if they got 2,500 people to agree to sign up for the Vacation Club, uh, then they could fill those 51 units. If, you know, we hit that number, we'd make $30 million a year. Okay, it's probably like $20 a point, mm. which... To put it in perspective, I think now the going rate's like 200 a point, but okay, go oh, ahead. Oh, jeez. Okay. So anyway, imagine Mark's delight, you know, that, that they make them available to purchase. By February of 1993, they had sold over $50 million worth of points. So there was that much demand. So they wanted to sell $30 million, yeah. and then they were at $50 million. Wow, okay. So good. Okay. So suddenly they, they meet guest demand. They have to rush to build 150 additional units. So the interesting thing that came with this, there were also tons of uh, benefits yes. that, uh, that, <laughs> that owners got. So, and the reason I know this is mm. because Bob Selinger bought in to DVC at Old Key West mm. the first year. And if I recall correctly, one of the benefits was park passes through the turn of the millennium. Yeah. Yeah, there were. It was fascinating to watch what fell off the table as DVC became that much more successful, and, and they expanded another 150 units. Those were available for occupancy in March of 1993, and yeah. when those were ready, uh, they began work on another 150 more. They only had room for 500 units max on that side. Yeah, because they're bordered on one side by um, is it Osceola Parkway. Mm-hmm. They still managed on a site that was only supposed to have 150 units to build 761 Len, which is why it <laughs> does feel a little tight in there. But anyway, you know, that the, the whole notion of having a, a timeshare Disney vacation club kind of a thing is that you bought into this particular resort, but you can trade it to go other places. And to circle back to what we talked about previously about the Melbourne project, Disney felt strongly and knew from its own research that people who come to Walt Disney World spend some time at the beach. So right. they announced that we purchased 70 acres in Vero Beach, Florida. The Sentinel, like in their introduction to the, the March 1993, that Disney is going to be building a Vero Beach. This is the, the way they start the story. After building the Grand Floridian Beach Resort, the Caribbean Beach Resort, and the Beach Club, the Walt Disney Company has hit upon a novel idea, building a beach resort on an actual beach. <laughs> you, yeah. you know that there was an editor at the Sentinel that was just waiting to say that? Yes, yes. By the, by the way, uh, Old Key West is bordered by uh, Buena Vista Drive and Bonnet Creek. There we go. Uh, there we Parkway. Go. And then... Disney Springs on the other side, mm -hmm. right? So there's sort of a limit to what they can do. Okay, fair enough. Okay. All right, go ahead, Jim. So anyway, Disney goes into Vero Beach thinking, okay, this is going to be Conch Flats too, which the hotel you were just talking about, uh, you know, on Buena Vista and Bonnet Creek was initially Disney Vacation Club and only became Old Key West after they built second on-site DVC. Right. Conch Flats, I think, I think we knew that, mm -hmm. right? That that was going to be, that was the... Working title? Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, you know, okay. that was the one that sort of leaked out there, but in the end, you know, I guess Old Key West tested better, and that's how, what they defaulted to, but they thought yeah. Vero Beach was going to be Conch Flats too, so the original plan, uh, 120 room in with 60 villas, they break around it in July of 1994, but they've already got land 100 or so yards inland, 
to build an additional 260 villas. So, you know, when the ocean levels rise, all of a sudden it's, sea, it's seafront again. There we go. You know, the, 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 Got to plan ahead, Jim. Got to plan ahead. Anyway, DVC at Vero Beach opens October 1995. But unfortunately, at this point, Len, only 500 members had signed up to be part of this property. And Oh, really? Okay. Disney had envisioned that they'd have... Upwards of 20,000 people buying in eventually to this DVC at Vero Beach. Having 500 was a problem. Oh, yeah. 500 isn't even occupant. It's barely occupancy for two nights, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. 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 Oof. Yeah. You're not selling out every day there. Yeah. So Mike Burns, who's at this point is the vice president and general manager of Disney Vacation Club's Florida operations, says, our research shows that 40% of Walt Disney with summer visitors want to go to the beach. And the hope is that it will also become, you know, eventually become popular with Southern Florida residents. We know there's a big market out there. The challenge is how to figure out to communicate this new product. But in the end, Disney just could not crack that problem. It's a two-hour drive away from Disney property. The weird thing is that if you try to go to Vera Beach in October, 90% of the time, this resort is booked in October. Yeah, I mean... It's beautiful, like a few months out of the year, spring and the fall. But Vero Beach just had perpetually so many empty rooms in its inventory. Disney Vacation Club quietly abandons its plan to expand this resort in 2001. In fact, Disney went so far as to sell off the land that they'd acquired for those 260 other villas. Really? Yep. They sold that off in 2006. Have you and Laurel been to the DVC in Hilton Head yet? Yes, and it's lovely. Mm-hmm. The thing that, that I found fascinating about it was how it's really integrated into the surroundings of the beach and the community. Oh, yeah. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't know a Disney hotel is there until you're right on top of it. But once you get in there, mm-hmm. it feels like you're in the bubble. Mm-hmm. Yep. But again, it's tiny. It's only 15 acres. It's very small. It, there's a dog there. I believe the dog's name is George. Or there was, we go. You know, yes, yes he's, yeah. he is the ambassador. I want to say the only giveaway other than, of course, the you know the Disney name on the sign rolling in is I think they have a, what, a Bambi topiary and a Thumper topiary out front. And it's But it's really, really, really subtle. The, uh, the other thing that I like about it is they managed to put things that you need within walking distance or maybe they, you know, it just sort of grew up that way. But like there's a Whole Foods you can walk to from that. So if you needed food, if you're staying for a week or whatever, mm-hmm. it's right there. The other thing that I like is I like the way the beach is at, is at Hilton Head. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those sort of longer beaches where you can walk for, you know, 50 yards mm-hmm. and still not hit water. The, um, the one downside to it is the Hilton Head Resort itself is not actually on the beach. No. No. It's on like a little inlet. But you can, I mean, there's still, you know, water comes in. Mm-hmm. You can um, you can throw out crab pots and catch crabs. Yep. In fact, they built that 300-foot fishing pier that Disney being Disney, they, they made great efforts to age and make look like it had been there forever. So as to not upset the locals. But Vero Beach opens October of 1995. Hilton Head opened six months later in March of 1996. And the thing that Disney learned is... One of these was just over 100 miles away from Walt Disney World. Well, the other one was 329 miles. And people just weren't willing to buy into these units the way they were the ones that were on property. If you're paying attention to what DVC was up to at that point, they had plans to build an elaborate unit at Newport Beach in California. There was going to be a, a ski resort out in Colorado. In fact, the one that was supposed to be built on 42nd Street, just up the block from the New Amsterdam, 
when uh, Hilton Head and Vero Beach didn't happen, Eisner lost his nerve. And, and let's also remember that this is still Michael Eisner who's dealing with the effects of what happened after Euro Disney yeah. didn't make its numbers. But I wanted to share something. There's a, a brand new book by uh, Michael Rydell. Uh, it's called Singular Sensation, The Triumph of Broadway. And it talks about this particular moment in Disney Company history. So it's 1994. The Lion King is in rehearsal, going to be opening at the, the newly refurbished New Amsterdam Theater. And so Michael Eisner is now getting a little carried away with what he wants to do in New York. This is before Hilton Head, uh, Vero Beach and Hilton Head have opened. So what he's talking about doing on 42nd Street, this is a, a quote from the book. He wants to close it and build a deck above it featuring a New York-themed entertainment park. And then someone pointed out to me that, that the exit out of the Lincoln Tunnel depends on 42nd Street. So that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to hear the negotiations with you know Mayor Bloomberg about closing 42nd Street. That would have been epic. This is when Michael actually tours the new Amsterdam Theater and sees what a jewel it was. But, you know, there's holes in the roof and there's pigeons living inside the building. And they step outside and it's still 42nd Street of the 80s. You know, they're, they're surrounded by, yeah. you know, ladies of the evening and that sort of thing. And, and Michael's like, uh, you know, yes, I would really like to rebuild this theater and, and put shows in here. But I'm a little concerned about the neighborhood. And Giuliani gestures out, oh, don't worry, Michael, all the hookers will be gone. And it's like, well, Mr. Mayor, are, are you allowed to say that? Are you allowed to do that? And Giuliani steps up to Eisner's like, look me in the eyes. And it's like, okay, they will be gone. Yeah. <laughs> so, again, I, I don't know where that story goes from that point, Len, but it just, you know, uh, just wanted to share that. It's, it's a vastly different uh, Times Square these days. It is. Vastly it different. is. Yeah. So. Cool. Well, that was, that's a, a great uh, story, Jim. And thanks for finishing up the uh, the Vero Beach history. I've, I It's the one Disney DVC resort that I haven't been to, well, so I'm looking forward to going. Okay. You really have to check it out. But one suggestion, if you can time it for when, I want to say it's the, the, is it the green sea turtles? I, I forget which one, the, 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 or it's the lockerheads that, that nest right along the beach there. When the, the the turtles come in, they throw the wire mesh over the nest to protect them from predators. So that must be October then. I'm thinking. So well, maybe that's why yeah. they, they you know they sell out for you know ninety percent. Maybe that's the thing people know to go there for that. So people migrate to watch the turtles migrate. <laughs> Like, that is the great circle of life. There we How about go. That? There we go. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including a second set of ideas that Disney came up with for the Land Pavilion back in the 1970s. On next week's show, Jim gives us the history of Lion King shows at the Walt Disney theme parks. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, LennetToringPlans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's judging the children's art contest at the International Festival of Owls on Saturday, March 6th, 2021 at the Houston High School on West Elm Street in beautiful downtown Houston, Minnesota. Don't forget, kids, that Aaron likes to see mixed and multimedia presentations, so practice your metal welding, interpretive dance, and soundscapes. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.